You're listening to the Coffee and Technology Podcast brought to you by Cropster. In this episode, we speak with Michael Phillips. Michael Phillips is the Director of Global Education and Engagement at Blue Bottle Coffee. In this episode, we discuss his journey to the WBC, how coffee retail has evolved, and what the future could be for high-quality instant coffee. Enjoy. Cool. Norbert, welcome back, man. It's exciting to be uh, recording again after, you know, a little break, a little pause and traveling and excited to see you virtually again. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's good to be back. I'm very excited about this one. Yeah, no, with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Michael Phillips of of Blue Bottle. Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, very, it's an honor to have you here. Um, You've been in the industry for quite some time now and with a lot of pedigree behind you and uh, excited to be talking to you today. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great. I listen to a, a lot of what you folks put out. It's really good content, really interesting people. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's podcasting is hard work and I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that other people do it. So I get to reap the benefits. So thank you for that. Cool. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the kind words. <laughs> um, no, if we so if we just get started, um, now, right now we know he's Michael Phillips, a blue bottle uh, director of education. Um, but I also know, you know, your past world breeze champion. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the journey of, you know, a little bit how you got into coffee, but how basically really f- what took you from when you won world breeze, champ- the, the BBC to where you're at now in blue bottle. Um, I'm sure it's a fascinating journey. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's, it is literally over a decade ago now almost get to two so um, a lot of stuff snuck in there but I so I, I went to college the the preamble I went to college for digital cinema thinking I wanted to work in film and all that stuff and then I started to do it and I realized that I just utterly hated it um, but along the at least I, I hated working in sets you know so I was getting like commercial work and I didn't even own the tv hate commercials and it just wasn't wasn't fulfilling the creative niche that you dream of when you're in college going for a film degree um but that whole time i was falling more and more in love with coffee so i just hit a breaking point um and i sold all of my camera equipment and my lights and everything that i built up to that point and bought a home roaster and a little (laughs) prosumer dual boiler espresso machine and mazer mini and i was like i'm gonna learn how to do this this will be my new life it'll be wonderful that romantic dream um and it was great i uh couldn't get a job anywhere no one would hire me uh in minneapolis it's like i was just this dorky late 20s white guy coming in asking them about like their brew recipes and they're like you have no tattoos you don't look cool at all um so (laughs) eventually i gave up on that because it was going nowhere um and uh I went to go see a barista competition in Chicago. A partner of mine at the time uh, was traveling through and she's like, hey, you got to come check this out. Drive out, pick me up here and then we'll, we'll head back home. Uh, and I did it and I just, I fell in love. Um, Intelligentsia hosted it. This was in 2005, I think. Um, okay. So I drove down there and like I saw the event and I got to meet all these, it was like walking into an issue of Barista magazine, um, you know, because until he had that stable of top tier competitive baristas back then, uh, you know, so meeting Amber Saylor and Matt Riddle, and Stephen Rogers and all these, all these folks back then was really great. And uh, I was like, this is what I want to do. 
So I went back home and I would just scour online for job postings and something opened up in the production department there. Um, and at that point in time, I also thought I wanted to be a coffee roaster. So I moved out and they're like, yeah, you got the job. You can get here in a month. Did that, got out there and just worked on one of the most grueling production floors I've ever been on. Um, Intelligency was going gangbusters back then, right? Because it was still kind of those early days uh, mm -hmm. when specialty was like, there weren't a lot of people doing it right. And those that were, were able to just like really clean house. Um, so I worked in production, I saw the roasting going on and all that. Um, but they let me start like practicing for uh, the in-house competition on the side if I wanted to. Like anybody could compete at Intelli, even some guy putting mm -hmm. beans in bags and bags in boxes, boxes on trucks. So I did that <laughs> and uh, I actually did really well. Um, you know, I got to go to the regional and from there to the national. Like that first year, having never worked in a coffee shop, I took 13th uh, in the national, wow. which was better than like one of their trainers did. And it was like, so I was like, maybe I should work in the cafes and migrated there and then worked my way up uh, through the chain at Intelligentsia until you know, the first USBC title happened and then year after that, the second in the world's, um, the world title in London. And that basically was a, a huge inflection point where all sorts of doors open up when you get that, that kind of experience. Um, and it was magical. It's great. Um, I became Intelligentsia's director of training at that point. Um, and you know, they were opening all sorts of stuff in California and there's all these different invites around the world to experience, you know, giving lectures and seeing coffee production on that end. Um, but it was like, it was getting very, like intelligentsia was growing really fast. And for me, I felt some of the strains inside of it um, and just wanted to go to something smaller, something simple. So about a year after winning the title, uh, myself and two other uh, coffee professionals stepped out of intelligence to start Handsome Coffee in downtown Los Angeles. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a huge, terrifying move. Uh, intelligence treated me well. It was the highest paying job I'd ever had in my life, ever dreamed of having in my life. And I left it to like be broke, uh, more or less, sharing a 600-foot <laughs> apartment with another grown man. Um <laughs> But it was it was super magical, you know. Handsome was a very different concept at the point for the U.S. At least, mm -hmm. you know, we stole a whole bunch of great ideas from other people. You know, we took that menu that Gwilym was doing of just espresso and milk and different sizes, and um, we uh, kind of got over the sacred cow pretty early of pour over being the future. You know, we went to batch brew, which everybody was shocked about. Back in 2010, um, we didn't have coffee or chocolate or, sh I'm sorry, we didn't have sugar <laughs> for coffee mm -hmm. anywhere in the bar and all those, all those different things that like got a lot of attention, but, you know, helped start a conversation. Uh, so Handsome was a, a, a really interesting step in that it, it changed a lot of conventions as to how we're making coffee and what we're talking about. Uh, but it was also much more eye-opening and 
having to be a business owner and actually be pragmatic and not just like a barista who can tell a business owner like, Hey, we want to do the most rigorous standards in our cafe. And we want to train people for six months before they get to pull shots on their own. Like, you know, it's very easy to be an idealistic barista when you're not managing the PNL. Um, so handsome kind of burned a lot of that into my psyche as well about how functional training needs to be aside from just geared towards perfection. Um, and then 2014 came along and that is when uh, we sold handsome to blue bottle coffee as they entered into that market. Um, you know, the company had a great run. We had a lot of internal strife that we we're trying to figure out how to deal with. Then um, honestly, that was kind of a, a best case scenario at the moment. Um, not, neither of the other founders came with me, uh, but I joined Blue Bottle uh, with the idea that I would go into the training department, and and that's what happened. And um, yeah, it was a that's a whole other chapter of of wild rides. Uh, as I've been with Blue Bottle about eight years now, and I've held a ton of different roles. Uh, had a lot of great experiences. So that was very rambly. I'm not sure if I amazing. No, no, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember all those steps. I remember being there and on the on the outskirts, uh, lurking. And uh, well, I I remember my first visit to to Handsome, of course, and uh, that the roaster was almost to be connected, uh, and all the all, you know all the things with connecting a, a burning machine in Los Angeles is not that easy and. <laughs> yeah, I remember it, like we kind of like uh, shared the new concept with the world at uh, SCA in Houston, I think it was that year. It was a year Pete Licata, um won the USBC um, before the world's like a year or so before. Anyways, we were in Texas for that and we were looking around, right? We didn't have a roaster secured, so we went to Probat. Uh, their booth and we're like yeah we're looking to start a roaster up in california what do you what do you recommend what should we do should we go refurbish should we get one of these and they're like have you ever thought about moving to nevada um <laughs> 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 they're just like because they're like they don't permit roasters in, in la anymore that's a uh, good luck that's a very steep hill to climb but yeah. we got lucky everything kind of came together it was definitely dicey for a minute but um it's in place now and it's great so um i'm curious what a lot of what you're where you're saying in your story is you it seems like you have this passion or this interest in educating and like teaching people and and you know, like you know structure and process i'm curious to know like what is it about um the idea of like education and coffee that that fascinates you most like what is it that that drives you and and why you 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 have like this passion for that specific part of of what you do i mean i i think it's because it's like it's my own passion right my own like if you take one of those weird personality tests you know that says who you are and what your your archetype is like i am a learner like i love i love to learn new things um to the point where i'm almost kind of a flake about it right like i will go <laughs> so deep into a new topic and i'll learn everything and i'll like get really invested but then once i feel like i've gotten a certain amount of uh depth into it a lot of times i'll just get distracted by something else you know i i learn mm -hmm. everything i can and then it's like well i could go into doing a big thing with it 
or I could just go learn something else. Um, so I, I have bounced around with that a little bit, but, um, you know, coffee is one of the few things that's really been able to hold that attention. And part of it, uh, is the ability to share that joy of learning. Um, cause I feel like coffee is unique in some ways for education in that, you know, I'm never introducing, like I'm never introducing someone to coffee. Everybody comes to you having had coffee for decades in their life. You know, they've been drinking it, consuming it, experiencing it. Um, so you're not like, you're not showing them something brand new, but what, what's even better is you're showing them something, this, this magical sort of unseen side to something that they thought they knew. Um, so that experience, uh, is always just so rewarding um and you know everybody anybody coming to a coffee education class is already you know they're kind of invested in in the idea of it a little bit and they're open to the wonders so uh a lot of education you're just dealing with you're dealing with happy people that are getting to do something that they're excited about you know so i feed on that energy and it also feeds into my my desire to learn more you know, I firmly believe like there's only so much you can learn just studying on your own. Uh, at some point, you kind of start to plateau and teaching what you've been practicing is the way to move to that next step. When you actually have to like put it into words and help someone understand these concepts, it builds them into your own practice uh, in a much more foundational way. That's very interesting what you say in terms of like the learning journey you you create and um you said well i learned something and then i kind of know and then i move on and then i learn something else now looking back at those last 15 20 years um a lot has changed a lot has evolved how do you deal so first of all i want to talk a little bit about that evolvement of brew recipes and brewing coffee in general but also your personal experience with um, learning something and then letting go of that learning because something else and something new came along, which potentially so challenges what you have learned before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's so I, uh, I'm a, I'm a newly minted husband. Um, and my wife and I, we took a trip up to Seattle over the forest to see some of her friends and just have a little, little extra celebration in there um but like you know coffee tourism is a thing right it's, it's like a whole industry now it feels like um but i'm sure us three have probably been doing it well before it was you know on eaters top 10 lists um so we go to seattle and i think we went we were there for five days and we probably went to like 14 coffee shops um but one of them that i went to like it was just a time capsule you know i walk in there's three people on bar they've got a clack clack grinder and just seeing like it was just like a ptsd triggered moment just seeing this barista going gets like a full i have a few of those here yeah takes the lid off the dosing chamber like swipes the top of the mound back into the chamber and then like has a tamper on top of the machine and just goes like all these things that like, you know, I remember, I remember those days, you know, that when I started in coffee, like 
the process for pulling a shot of espresso was very different. You know, like maybe you trained with a training with a scale for espresso back then meant tamping on a bathroom scale to make sure you hit 30 pounds uh, or 15 pounds for the first tamp and 30 for the second tamp. If you were really in the know, um, you know, so it's just like everything was different back then. It was all by eye. Espresso was still voodoo magic, you know, like every person that got on to shots had to redial in. Right. And like, that was commonly mm. accepted that like, Oh, a new barista is on bar. They're going to have to change the dial to match their individual technique, how hard they tamp, you know, like all these other different things that were, were just like ingrained in us. It's like going back to the time where, you know, early civilization would see a mountain spewing lava out and they were pretty convinced there was an angry God underneath it. You know, that's like, that was the level of espresso understanding back then. You would just create excuses for outcomes because you didn't know any better and you needed some reason to latch on to so you didn't go insane. Um, so we've come a long way since then. You know, for me, that was my start. You know, I would knock the side of the portafilter with my tamper because that's what the trainer said and that's what their trainer said and that's what their trainer said. It was all oral tradition. It was all craft. Um, but I really feel like I was fortunate in that I came in on the tail end of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I came in at a company that was like determined to win, right? Like intelligentsia at that point in time was like, you know, Doug Zell might've, might as well have been the owner of a NASCAR team. You know, he was just like, <laughs> we're going to get this. We're going to get the best equipment. We're going to get the best pit crew. We're going to do all these things. So like, even though we were still guilty of all those uh, sort of poor practices, um, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to, to get better at it. Um, and there's always new talent coming in. Like I remember the pretty big inflection point when Intelligentsia decided to go to the West Coast and they brought in Kyle Glanville and Tony Konechny and uh, that whole crew. And they spurred a bunch of ideas as well. Um, so, you know, going from there, bringing in uh, metrics, you know, things you can measure, actual testable results, uh, empirical data, all that good stuff, um, just started landing everywhere in the process, uh, from brewed coffee to espresso to milk. Um, and I, like, I lived for it. You know, that, like, that scratched my learning side really well. Uh, because then you could start to build out testable processes and you could create a training structure for people. And there's this idea that we could white knuckle our way into perfection just by controlling every aspect of it. Um, you know, and we did pretty well. Uh, but that, you know, that early iteration of, of growth through technological investments and, and sort of studying that process had its uh, it had its downsides too you know that was that idealistic barista moment where it's like no we can't have this guy pulling shots he's only been here for two months you know he's still tamping at wildly different pressures every time you know in in dosing you know i checked his doses his variation is like 0.7 grams it's like there's no way he's he's got to go through more training and then the poor cafe manager is like 
we have no one you've agreed to certify to make espresso. And where do you think we stand? We stand now on that on that uh, development. Are we having now general accepted rules of what housings are, or is it still a little bit wild westish? In a, in a certain um, sense. Well, I mean, we had generally accepted rules back then too. They were just more mm -hmm. guidelines, right? Like it was generally accepted that you stopped a shot once you saw the stream starting to get blonde, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it was generally accepted that you didn't want grounds on the upper ridge inside of the porta filter, which is why you had to knock it with your tamper to get them to fall down and then tamp it. Like, You know, there was codified, generally understood rules among better cafes. They're just wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I think it's hubris for us to think that the general codified rules we have now are all absolutely right and questionable. But mm -hmm. I mean, the good thing is, I don't think for the most part, a lot of people do. And there's definitely like the, the challenge is like the newer you are to espresso, like the second you start to, or specialty in general, like when you're early on in that learning journey and it's just this whole crazy new wide world, everything you learn feels like, you know, you've unlocked a secret that the rest of the world doesn't know. And then all of a sudden for you, that secret is the rule, you know, whereas people who have been doing this for a little while longer, they realize that that's just a temporary point of understanding that we're at right now. And it'll probably change. Um, and we got to be open to that change. But yeah, I feel like at this point, there are some really solid accepted guidelines. There's so much more content around training that people are able to share. Um, the thing that I like about right now is that it feels like we've identified a lot of like really powerful tools for setting standards. And now a lot of the questioning is coming around how do we use those tools, you know, to create different schools of thought, right? So Blue Bottle is a very specific school of thought when it comes to a number of things around coffee preparation. And that school of thought is a direct reflection of how James prefers to make coffee. Um, like our recipe for espresso would blow most people's minds and be like, that's incredibly regressive. I can't believe you're doing that just because we, uh, we have an inverted ratio um in terms of dose and yield but we're able to talk in terms of dose and yield and percent extraction and we just have a school of thought that's at one point on the spectrum whereas you know gmb or la cabra or someone else is going to be at a different point right they're going to be using a much higher uh ratio of, of water to coffee um but we have the tools in place to at least communicate what those standards are in a transferable way. Um, and we have the technology to allow us to be much more consistent in how we recreate these drinks. So, you know, I can jump on to any bar at Blue Bottle and start pulling shots that were dialed in the way the previous barista had dialed them in and get somewhat similar results because we have those mm -hmm. controls in over what our dose is, over our puck preparation, over what our yield is, over what the time should be. Uh, so we can, we can have that consistency in a way that was never possible before. And from a training standpoint, it's, it's just light years better. You're not teaching people to guess, you know, you're not saying, all right, you need to eye how much coffee is in that basket. You need to, understand that 
you know, when it gets to this volume and it's really fresh, it's different from when it gets to that volume and it's older. Um, you know, a lot of those ambiguities are gone. We've got much more understandable metrics we can use with people, which, you know, someone can get to the point in their coffee skills in a month that probably took me a year and a half when I first began. So how important is the, the temper um, and like an automated temper, which oh. knocks out at 30 pounds or something? Uh, is, that, is that a good thing? Are is it a bad thing? Is that a revolution? Are you just trying to rile me up? <laughs> no, but just, uh, okay. I just went to Milan to the coffee shop yeah. and I just got one. So mm -hmm. I haven't used it yet. <laughs> Tell me, did, did I make a mistake? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it all depends. And th this is the, this is, This is where I am probably incredibly frustrating for some people because I, <laughs> I have a hard time saying something is right and something is wrong. You know, there are many situations in which an automated tamper is absolutely the perfect choice. And then there's others where it's not, you know, it depends on what the goal is, uh, you know, that you're trying to achieve. Um, so, I, for like automated tampers uh, are a solution to very real challenges around the sustain, the health sustainability of the profession, right? Tamping can be very detrimental to people's uh, wrists and, you know, their, their general ability to keep being baristas in the long term. Um, however, for us, so I did a, a test when we were looking at it at Blue Bottle um, we got one of the puck press units that sits under, uh, uh, K30, um, which is what we're using in the lab at that time. And we use bottomless portafilters and, you know, we just ran through and pulled something like 150 shots, uh, with the puck press with manual. Um, and we checked extraction percentages, um, and it just, it wasn't even close for us. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if part of that was because the bottomless portafilter, I think is more of a struggle for that if we didn't have it set up, but like 150 shots on each side, we tried, you know, we, uh, yeah. you know, we had a pretty sharp team, uh, trying to do the work and there's just there's too much variation in what we're getting out. Now there's an argument to be made that if you're primarily a high volume milk drink cafe, um, everything you're serving is 12 ounces or larger for the most part. And you just need to crank that level of variation probably wouldn't be as perceptible in the final cup and could be an amazing solution in terms of bar flow, speed of service, ease of training, all of those good things. Um, however, if you're trying to sell a $10 shot of espresso and you're using waste distribution technique and you got all this stuff in place, I don't think that that's the next logical step in your bar flow process. If you're trying to get the highest quality shot, but I hope, and I'm excited to be proven wrong. Like all of these things are, they're just waiting to get better and better. So. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting you say that because, um, you know, obviously like, you know, you got, you did your due diligence, you analyze, you collected the data, you analyze the data of, of 150 shots in your lab and whatnot. And it's interesting because, you know, one 
I guess, question we've posed to like more roast focused guests before is like being able to balance data and beliefs, balancing like what you know and balancing what you find and what the technology says or what the data says. Um, and it seems like to be the same, that same kind of like balance you have to find in the cafe is like doing what you know, but also not being opposed or seeing what, what is, what is the technology developed for? What does the data say? And then is it going to work for you or is it not? Or it depends on, you know, your, your situation. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's super fascinating that you can find that balance for sure. Well, it's, it's so hard in coffee because, you know, there's so much, uh, kind of romance and attachment tied up in how we make coffee. Right. For a lot of people, even coffee professionals, it's that ritual, it's that skill set that, you know, we love and it makes us it makes us feel special. Right. Like we, we've got this thing that we can do. And the more technology chips away at that, like it's literally chipping away at some people's professional identity. You know, what what a, what is this skill that I've spent the last decade plus working on refining mean if now. I can get a puck press and a Wally and a PB and all of a sudden, you know, I don't need to do any of it. You know, it does all of that. Um, so it's, it's a challenge, I think for a lot of folks to get past that mental mindset, you know, and I'm definitely in that camp, right? Like, um, it's hard for me to like see a lot of these things and be like, ah, you know what, the way they're doing that, I don't, I don't think that's top quality because my mind, the, the best quality shot needs to be this. It needs to be this, needs to be this, which is how I've learned and how I've grown my knowledge to like be attached to this skill set I've developed. Um, but, you know, who knows, maybe Eversys is going to take over the world soon and, you know, we're all just going to have to. <laughs> I want I wanted to ask towards that direction, <laughs> but I didn't dare. <laughs> I um, no, but I think I, I think the, the world is is kind of evolving into that direction. Not only in coffee, in, in any aspect, machines are when whatever the, yeah. the human did can now be done by a machine. So the human has to learn how to operate the machine, but still know or can focus on other things. Yeah. It's where, where, where you say, well, we have different coffees, we have different um, drinks we want to we want to create, and not everything can be automatically adjusted by the machine. So knowing how to adjust the machine or using the right ingredients, uh, I don't know, just some some thoughts. Yeah, well, I, and it's you know, it's, it's funny talking about all of this with you guys because <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> yeah. uh, when it first hit the ground, a lot of people saw Cropster that same way it's like oh it's going to take out the art and it's going to take out all of this and it's going to be coffee by robots and but now like i don't know a single serious roaster that you know wouldn't have a fit if you tried to take away his his their their cropster support you know like it's such a invaluable tool that's uh you know it hasn't taken away the art it's just elevated what we can do with it you know and hopefully the preparation side follows that path, right? And you know, we're we're open to what this level of insight and automation and ability that technology brings uh, in a way that lets us progress what a cafe experience can be uh, for our guests. Um, you know, it, it depends on the level where you, where you where you 
where you go in, right? If it's supportive, I think there's a lot more to be done with automate or with not automation, with with, with support of, of of the human. I just thought about the ABS system on the on the car. It's like, yeah. well, I'm uh, I feel an artisan driver by by braking or using the brakes in a certain way under all kinds of conditions. Like that's that's no fun. Uh, if an, a system can do that and know exactly if it's wet, if it's not wet, if it's curvy, whatever, and and figures that out for me, I'm, I can be focusing my driving on something else. And maybe that's the same as like that's the same as roasters and same as baristas. Uh, the, the ingredients in coffee are so complex. It's the, it's one of the most complex food items we we have available in terms of chemical compounds, right? So. There's, there's endless opportunities, in my opinion, to, to still steer and, and be in charge. Enjoying this episode of the Coffee and Technology Podcast? This podcast would not be possible without the support of Cropster. Whether it's tracking harvest yields, roastery and inventory management, or simply tracking brew recipes, Cropster Origin, Cropster Roast, and Cropster Cafe can help you streamline your workflows and help you operate more efficiently. So, you know, with all this information out there, like, that you can, that you learn about, that you can share with your, with the team at Blue Bottle and even at, at the end consumer. Um, can you kind of like tell us like, or compare and contrast a little bit about like the education on like a business level and a consumer level, you know, how the way you approach internal education versus the way you would approach external education. What is that? What does that kind of look like um, from your perspective and the, maybe even the, the Blue Bottle perspective? Yeah, certainly. And, and just to, to clarify uh, my, so I've held a lot of different roles at Blue Bottle. Um, and the first one, and probably one of the longest ones, uh, was as director of education. And that was focused exclusively on internal barista training. Um, so I helped hmm. build out the markets and the systems and a lot of the uh, equipment changes that went into the cafe, all those different things. Um, cafe design, like that was all wrapped up in that role. Um, but then I, I migrated over to, you know, we were starting to open cafes pretty quickly. So I was doing new cafe openings and that pulled me into that world. Um, and I handed off director of training to the very talented team that had been built up. Um, and then I moved from cafe openings to culture programs. So think origin travel, SCA trips, um, higher end uh, internal education, things like that. And then most recently, so now I'm the global director of education or and engagement, which is a big fancy title, but it mostly involves making uh, educational video content for our guests and then also a lot of the other video work. So for our internal training, um, I am not currently the, the director of that team. I don't want to steal anyone's thunder there. Okay. Um, okay. But what I can speak to is that, um, you know, those are two very, very different groups uh, with very, very specific needs, you know, and what internal training looks like for a company like say Handsome Coffee versus Blue Bottle is insanely different. Uh, like there are some common threads that go through it, but, you know, for Blue Bottle, we've got over hundred cafes. Um, that's a lot of baristas in a lot of different markets and, you know, the needs of a program like that, um, they shift a lot, you know, so you're looking, two big things you're looking at for a company like us is you need consistency 
in a way that shifts from a small two to three cafe chain, right? We want people to go into a cafe in New York, cafe in LA, a cafe in Hong Kong. And when they order a cup of our Bella Donovan blend um, pour over, it tastes the same in each of those. You know, that involves consistency in all departments from our roasting teams in those different markets to uh, how we staff, how we set standards, how we train. So consistency is a huge challenge and that's a technology solution and a training solution. Um, but then also speed of training and ability to train. Uh, so when I joined Blue Bottle, you know, we were still just the Bay, New York and LA. And we had centralized training labs, <clears throat> uh, training teams. And, you know, if you were hired for X cafe, you would go to that training center um, for like, I think six to eight total days spread over the course of a, a month or so. Um, that trainer would coordinate with your in-cafe lead barista, you know, to make sure the in-cafe portion of the training was worked out. But it was like, there is still this very centralized hub as you start to get cafes further and further away from those training centers, that solution becomes very problematic. Um, and the pace becomes problematic as well. You know, I remember the first time we got to the point of having to open two cafes in the same market uh, in the same month. It's like, how are we going to train 40 baristas in this one lab in this time frame? Um, so figuring out how to do that speed and then also the turnover, right? If you have 15 cafes in a market, even if you have good employee retention, you're still going to have churn um, to get enough baristas through that and to get them up to speed quick enough that these cafes, you know, have a functioning viable workforce. Um, so consistency and, and throughput of, of well-trained baristas is, is a big challenge for a company like us. Um, and that's, that's an internal solution. Whereas a smaller company, you know, if you've got, you know, something where it's a, a one shop operation and you've got the founder in there and they're working with every team member, you know, you don't have to have modules set up to communicate company values. You don't have to worry about, more scaled, very, very systematic processes because you know you can have that constant one-on-one -on -one interaction. The whole team is more accountable to each other. Um, and you can have more of a bespoke training program, right? Um, whereas we definitely need, you know, a source of truth in terms of documentation for recipes and patterns and, and all those things. Um, you know, so for commercial training, those are some of the challenges that vary depending on the cafe, but ultimately the edge there that's really wonderful is these people have skin in the game, right? They need to learn what you're teaching so they can do their job and feel successful at it. Um, and you'll have them for a while. So you can go in depth, you can get beyond the basics. You can do more advanced education throughout the course of their employment. Um, Whereas consumer training, you know, this is a whole different thing. They, you know, their ability to pay rent does not rest on whether or not they take away a solid pour over technique from your hour long class. Um, however, usually if they are attending, you know, oftentimes they're more excited about coffee 
than some of the staff members might be, right? You know, it's a lot of people talk about how, oh, you have to hire the most passionate coffee people and, you know, it's, it's building a family and it's like, well, it's not a family for everybody. For a lot of people, it's a job and they may enjoy coffee, but they're not super fanatics about it. They just want to show up, do good work, uh, you know, feel proud of what they do and then go home and be able to pay their bills. So, you know, there's oftentimes different mindsets between commercial and consumer facing stuff. Uh, consumers are excited, but it doesn't necessarily matter if they, they hold on to it as well. You don't have them as long uh, anywhere near. So like consumer education has to be really sticky, right? It has to be like super engaging, almost edutainment to make sure people stay with you. And it has to be like, fully encapsulated inside of those small options because most of the time you'll never see those folks again. So you want to pour over classes just like the greatest hits of the high level stuff. You're not getting into, all right, well, let's talk about your water TDS and uh, you know how to adjust coffee over age or like variations and pour styles. Like you just don't, you, know, you just want them to get to like a minimum level in the time that you have them. I'm just tapping on that a little bit. You, you, I think you mentioned educating consumers directly in classes, in mm -hmm. like life classes. What, what about like uh, online content and videos and all those things where like the self-service part of it, how does that play into, into the education? Yeah, I, it's, you know, this is, this is the new Wild West, I feel like. Uh, what online education looks like. There's a lot of people following formulas again, but it's just like, why are you doing it that way? Well, because I saw this company do it that way and that company do it that way. Like we don't have, um, or at least I don't have <laughs> the analytics on this yet. You know, there's the ability is there to really start to pull in uh, some data around how this works. It just, I don't know that it's filtered into coffee education uh, in, in the most tangible ways. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of how-to content for people that is free on YouTube, excuse me. Um, and soon on our, our new website when we launch it uh, to be more video capable. Mm -hmm. But it's like, in my mind, that stuff's there is like a, kind of a follow along reminder guide how to where it's like okay this is how blue bottle does a french press you know you put in this much coffee you grind it this way it's this much water and like and that content's everywhere um from individuals to starbucks um you know out there making it and i i feel like it's good and it's helpful but it's hard to it's really hard to get too far in that fashion right because you're learning in a bubble mm -hmm. um now if you are a really self-motivated person and you're great at these online courses um and you can you can really put yourself through it i think there's a lot of opportunity but i i still think as an industry we're struggling to find out how to make them as impactful as we want um you know in a way that's more than just sharing Uh, recipes and, and theories, but it's actually helping to develop people in the long run. And there's a lot of folks trying, you know, um, you know, 
everyone everyone loves Hoffman's content. It's it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then there's also like there's so much white noise, right? Like yeah. there is. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count weird influencers from other genres who've just decided to make how to how to make cold brew DIY videos, and you watch some of it, and you're like, oh, oh no. And it has like 800,000 views, you know? Uh, so it's, I, I think there's a lot of challenge there in that, you know, there's no third party certification for posting YouTube video. Um, certainly not for TikTok. So well, what's the opportunity for, for, for a brand? Like, so like Blue Bottle, you have a big following, you have a lot of, um, a lot of uh, coffee shops out there um, and, and, and a lot of consumers will, will who get in touch with that brand so yeah. to tell them hey if you use our coffee or if you use this specific coffee right now this is the way you want to prepare it um so kind of a, you, you keep them in the blue bottle bubble uh, but also give them very targeted information which might not work for any other roast or any other coffee shop is that a thing i, do, the- I mean this is and this is where i i don't know maybe i'm just <laughs> old and cranky um <laughs> uh, like i don't see information uh as as being exclusive when it comes to brewing like you know if you really love onyx um and you you love their coffees but maybe you don't like their videos you can watch our videos and make their coffee it'll taste fine you know like there's no <laughs> that's that's one of the challenges uh, and also one of the amazing benefits like coffee's open source mm-hmm. you know there's no you can try and like you know you know we're we're a larger company now and we're pulling in a lot of people that are needed to help scale an organization across countries around the globe um, they're not all coffee people uh they're you know, finance people and marketing people, people have very valuable skill sets. Uh, but a lot of times they're like, well, what's, what's a thing that only we can do? And I'm like, put our logo on a bag. Only we can do that. Everything else, everyone else can do, right? <laughs> like you can't, there is no magical IP around brewing coffee um, that's specific to a company. Um, this is the same with buying, same with roasting. Like, Mm-hmm. We all can get access to these amazing producers. We all can buy alluring. We all can, you know, get a top shelf machine from Lama Zoko or, you know, go out there and use a decent, whatever you're trying to do. Like there is no uh, exclusive edges. I feel like people can buy which, you know, may frustrate some on that end, but it's truly exciting and magical for the world of coffee consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, because all of this information just keeps stacking on top of itself to build a better and better experience for the world. That's amazing. So one thing that um, speaking of, you know, ways of brewing and like level of accessibility and whatnot, I am curious to know where you think instant coffee might have a, have a, like a, a role in that. And I asked that especially because, you know, recently my, you know, I was just in Colombia. They drink a lot of instant coffee there. And also my parents have recently getting, been getting into instant coffee and it seems like this new, I don't, I don't want to say new trend, but I just, I'm noticing it more. And while they may not be drinking the instant coffee that I may, may prefer myself, 
I am wondering, you know, for those who who like that that kind of like you know that idea of brewing coffee, but are would be interested in dabbling like the specialty side. I feel like there could be some sort of higher impact that we may not be aware of yet in the industry. Okay, maybe there's one area where IP is important. <laughs> um, it would probably be this, you know, this range of, of instance and things. You know, it's it's so hard to say. I feel like, you know, it's in that sort of scary world of what does technology bring because there is there is a future where you have like. 92 point coffees that you can just take out a tablespoon of and put in the water and then add five ounces. And all of a sudden it's the most delicious cup of coffee that money can buy that year. You know, like the, the process for making instant hasn't necessarily changed to my understanding in leaps and bounds, but, um, but it is changing slowly. And one of the most important changes that's happening is that people are just using better coffee. Um, you know, this is, this is just been the hugest shift. And I, you know, I feel like, you know, the guys at sudden started doing it way back. Uh, and voila was doing a, a great job. Like just being like, Hey, it's instant, but it's instant with this really awesome coffee from this great roaster. And, um, it started to blow people's minds. Like it still wasn't convincing your diehards and replacing their pour over program, but uh, they were certainly taking it on the plane with them, um, using it camping and, and other places like that. And I feel like the ability to do great instant at scale is going to be a, a huge game changer. You know, we've had, so we have a, a tier of coffee at Blue Bell that is our exceedingly rare line, our XR coffees. And these are like, you know, they're just our, our top shelf exclusive lots. And we had a coffee from Yemen that uh, we prepared that was an XR coffee for us that we prepared via instant, right? We did a small batch instant run with it. And that was delicious. It was a really, really delicious cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get longer shelf life, you get repeatability, you know, one of the curses of coffee, but also, you know, maybe an odd blessing, depending on how you like to think of it is that, you know, in some ways, instant is like a movie and pour over is like a play, you know, it's a moment in time that you have to be there to experience. And it's going to be a little bit different each and every time. Um, whereas a movie, you know what you're going to get. You can get that same. You love it. You can get it again and again and again. And someone else can get it and you can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that with plays, but it's a different experience for each person. You know how it pops up in different cities and different performances, different actors. Um and I feel like as coffee professionals, there's, you know, the dream of, oh, yeah, technology is going to come and baristas are going to be like a sommelier. You know, we don't have to focus as much on preparation. It's more about taste and communicating with the guest. That's really hard right now, given the organic nature and variability of the product, right? You can't say, oh, I've got this, 
2010 vintage coffee uh, from Bolivia that was used in a world barista competition um, that's going to taste exactly like this because you don't know how to make it taste exactly like that. Like you can't preserve coffee as well. Uh, the water variations, the grinder variations, the pour technique variations, all of those things create subtle differences that make our ability to build a library of taste and smell much more difficult than, you know, any other, the spirit industry or the wine industry, right? Cause those products have a shelf stability and, you know, uh, a bottle of wine doesn't taste different depending on how fast you pour it out. Um, so they have that consistency. Mm -hmm. There's a world where instant potentially gives us that con consistency as well to create vintages, to create a common language um, that is allowing us to build something even greater. Um, I think there are still a lot of challenges around getting instant to that level in terms of quality, but I know that we're trying, other people are trying. Uh, it could be a segue uh, for people who come from more from the, I need my morning fix. So they come from mm -hmm. the caffeine side and then realize it can also be a taste experience and then want to know more and then go to a coffee house or buy better coffee and then kind of get in, maybe into that a little bit more. I don't know, maybe that's just a romantic thought, but maybe yeah. it can be a well, you know, that does like in, in that vein of thinking, it democratizes great coffee. Mm -hmm. You know, right now to have a truly amazing cup of coffee, you either need to be in a major city that has a like top shelf roaster cafe that can prepare it for you, or you have to like invest a ton of money and time in building out your own setup, right? You know, you've got to use mm -hmm. bottled water and you've got to have a thousand dollar grinder and you, you need to practice your pouring technique and you need to have right filters and you got to have a scale. And there's, there's this huge barrier to entry to get that great mm -hmm. cup of coffee. And there's people that would probably very much enjoy that cup of coffee, but don't have the time or the resources to go through those hoops and, you know, maybe they live in Tecumseh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we have a product that allows them to experience that great coffee, if anything, that just makes a much bigger pie for specialty coffee uh, for people looking to take a slice out of it. Um, and it makes it more accessible to, to everybody. Amazing salt. Yeah, I love it. It's I always love democ democratization, and uh, I also loved your other thought on. And I heard Jeff Watts a little bit in that, <laughs> uh, like coffee is a is a is a public good in a way, and keeping it open. Um, that's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, I also kind of want to go back to what you said though earlier of, like, you know, there there could be a future of where we could take ninety point coffees and basically just pour five ounces in it and what and and that'll be your coffee. But I feel like, and maybe this is being me being too optimistic or a generational thing, but I feel like my generation and maybe like late Gen Zers are still are kind of like re-romantics in the sense they like this kind of like, at least people I know, like, you know, the, the, the idea of preparing coffee, the experience of preparing coffee and enjoying coffee. Um, so I feel like that future, maybe I won't see in my lifetime or maybe the end of my lifetime 
but like I said, maybe that's just me being too optimistic. <laughs> so I think it's fascinating though, you know, what the future could, could mean for that. Well, and this is, you know, you, I think, I think there's room for all of these answers to be right. Um, you know, th this was something that like, I got really excited about early on in my coffee career, uh, when I was a barista in Chicago, working in this one cafe and it's like, you know, back then, 2007, 2008, like you knew every cat, like if you were really into specialty, you knew a good chunk of the cafes across the country that were on your level. Right. Mm. You know, like mm -hmm. you, you'd be able to call out a place in Texas and two or three in San Francisco and a couple in New York. And like, because it, there weren't that many and most all of them were pretty similar. You know, they, back then they were, they didn't have million dollar build outs happening with professional architects. Um, you know, they're all kind of scrappy. They all had a similar menu of espresso drinks. Um, you know, it was, is a very similar thing. And then, so there was that tier and then there was like diner coffee and that was kind of it. Right. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I could personally back then I, my excitement was like, all right, this is just going to keep stratifying. Mm -hmm. There's going to be that and there's going to be diner coffee, but then, you know, there's going to be much better grab and go coffees. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be like the eccentric cafe that only brews siphon. And then there's going to be espresso only cafes. And then there's going to be places that only do cold brew. And then there's going to be places that only do instant, you know, like the market's just going to keep stratifying and there's going to be people that, you know, fill each one of those niches. So there, I don't think the idea of uh, coffee made to order brewed by hand is going to disappear. There's going to be people that, you know, what they want out of coffee isn't just the final cup. It's the experience, uh, the mm -hmm. ritual, the meditative nature, all of those things wrapped into one. It's the community of people that are also working on it, trying to figure out, you know, how to do that. Um, you know, vinyl is not easy, but mm -hmm. people still love vinyl now in some ways more <laughs> than ever. Um, despite the fact that they also have Spotify. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you'll find people that have invested $2,000 into their home coffee setup. Uh, but they also have some blue bottle instant up in the cupboard. It might be about the mood. Yeah. The mood. Yeah. That's time. I mean, it's gotta be a mood. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think anything's so. disappearing. I think if anything, we're just going to have an embarrassment of options for great coffee. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, amazing stuff, man. Appreciate, uh, sharing all your knowledge and experience with us today. It was very special and uh, really, really thank you for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a great honor to get to, to hang out with you folks and be a part of the good work you're doing. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Coffee and Technology Podcast. To learn more about Cropster, subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media. For more educational content, visit cropster.com forward slash learn.